0: Hello, I'm Jeff Gill, and welcome to Navigating Freedom in Federal Retirement. Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the thought of retirement? If you're a federal employee, navigating the complexities of policies, benefits, and financial planning can seem daunting. Here at Navigating Freedom in Federal Retirement, we're all about breaking it down, simplifying the complex, and making retirement planning not only accessible, but truly exciting. Join me and a hand-picked panel of experts as we dive into the topics ranging from policy insights to lifestyle changes. Every episode is crafted to provide actionable advice, insights, and stories tailored for federal employees like you. Whether you're a decade away from the farewell party or just a few years shy of your retirement goals, we've got your back. So if you're looking to equip yourself for a brighter, more informed retirement, hit the subscribe button. Share with your colleagues, and let's embark on this journey together.
1: Welcome to Navigating Freedom in Federal Retirement, the beacon for federal employees navigating the complex waters of retirement planning. We recognize your unique challenges, deciphering intricate policies and optimizing your benefits. Your host is Jeff Gill, a seasoned financial wealth advisor committed to demystifying this journey for you. Our strength a team of renowned specialists, policy experts, financial strategists, healthcare consultants, and more. Each episode aims to transform confusion into clarity, offering actionable insights and strategies. Federal employees, it's time to turn apprehension into action. The path to a confident retirement starts here. Let's dive in. All right,
0: welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Zapata. Stephanie Zapata is a marriage and family therapist. She specializes in financial therapy, particularly helping couples navigate the financial challenges during their retirement planning. She has a Ph.D. in marriage and family therapy and a Texas State uh, licensure. She combines expertise and compassion and transforms couples' lives. Stephanie also serves as an associate professor at Our Lady of the Lake University, contributing to education, research in her field. Her mission is to foster financial harmony, emotional well-being in couples, making her a prominent figure in the realm of financial therapy. Dr. Stephanie, I want to thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I'm so excited to be here.
0: Great. Well, it's a very interesting field that you've chosen. Can you explain what the difference in uh, financial therapy and how it differs from traditional financial planning?
2: Yeah, so essentially traditional financial planning in some ways gave birth to financial therapy right um as we were kind of chatting before the podcast you know there's the financial planners often will see what clients should do with their money and will coach them through this is this is the best way to kind of save slowly and consistently and do these things and so they'd outline this beautiful plan for their clients and the clients wouldn't follow it. <laughs> they would find that there was more than just knowing the right thing to do and doing the right thing with your money. There was a huge gap. And so financial planners saw, okay, there's there's a bit of psychology to this. Now, how I came to the field was not as, not as a financial planner. I came to the field through marriage and family therapy as a couples therapist. And so for couples therapists, the way that we kind of come to the field is when we're doing our work with our clients, we can talk about all these beautiful things. We can talk about communication. We can improve their sex lives. We can improve their parenting styles, all these things. And there's this little thread that kind of always in the background that never gets brought up of the couple's money and how they're having conversations and how their, their finances aren't really aligning, but it was always kind of in the background that I found with my couples. And so that's kind of the distinction for me between financial planning, traditional financial planning is helping people know the right thing to do, helping them get out of debt, showing them, okay, this is the safest way to grow your money steadily and guiding them more with the financial principles. Whereas financial therapy is really more aimed at helping people Understand their relationship with money, understand how it's impacting their lives, and how it's either aligning with their values and virtues or not aligning. And a lot of times when people are doing this spending thing, they don't, this overspending or this using money in a way that they don't feel comfortable with, they don't want to be doing that. They have a really good idea in mind. People aren't generally smart who are generally really good and they want to do the right thing, but there's stuff that gets in the way. And so what a financial therapist will do is they help people have those difficult conversations with the people in their lives, take those risks of saying what you really need to say and suddenly it opens up all these possibilities. And so that's, that's kind of the distinction between the traditional financial planning in the financial therapy, especially when you're doing relational financial therapy, when you're working with couples, with families, with parents and children. Yeah.
0: Excellent. Well, Dr. Stephanie, what motivated you to specialize in this financial therapy uh, as opposed to traditional financial counseling or therapy in, in general?
2: Yeah. Thank you for that question. It's it really, it kind of fell upon me, right? (laughs) So I've been licensed since um, 2010. That's when I completed my master's degree. So the field of marriage and family therapy is you, you can get your master's degree and your doctorate or you can practice with just your master's. So I completed my master's degree in 2010 and continued on to get my doctorate. And the unique thing about this license, I'll speak for Texas, I'm not familiar with all the other states' requirements, but in Texas at least, we are the only license that has required relational training hours, so um, we have to get 500 post grad clinical hours with couples or families, and no other license has that requirement. I'm not saying other licenses can't do it; they can, but we have that specific training requirement. And so I was, you know, made for seeing couples, and that was really my passion. Um, when I I completed my dissertation and and graduated with my doctorate. And then I got out there and I started working and it came up time and time again. Couples would come in. Their goal would be, we want to communicate better. We want to communicate better. And it was this just, I don't know, idea floating. I'm to come up in a jab. I would say, oh, like, well, you know, you're spending too much or you're like a, an insult would be thrown. And I realized that we could discuss their communication styles. We could discuss their parenting styles. We could, improve those all day long but if we don't also include their money beliefs into this they're never going to be speaking they're never going to understand each other right and so that's when I said well gosh I I wish there were a way that I could (laughs) that I could help couples with this specifically and I stumbled upon financial therapy And I just read everything I could. I joined the Financial Therapy Association and, you know, started just really understanding what I could offer there. And my goal is not so much to tell couples what to do with their money. That's not my goal at all. It's very much for them to have the confidence to have these conversations because it's very difficult to have them, I think, because a lot of couples are coming at it from a stance of, They don't want to hurt the other person. These are couples who do love each other, right? They don't want to hurt the other person. So they just stay silent. And what they don't realize is that by staying silent about it, you're actually hurting each other more. And so letting them learn how to bring the topic up in a loving way, not in a way that's critical, not in a way that's harsh. And when you do that and you help these couples kind of understand their relationship differently, it's amazing. I ask them all the time. I said, "What are you guys going to fight about now that you're not fighting about money?"
0: <laughs> and, right, right. And,
2: and what are y'all going to do with all this extra time? And, and they kind of laugh, but they, yeah, it's um, it's beautiful to see that just discussing these financial pieces, and then we quickly can move into other emotional aspects of the relationship, and it just unleashes all these beautiful possibilities when you're able to do that. So that that's kind of how I came to it. Was I was doing the couples work and just seeing wow, there's something more here and I need to go figure out how to help them with this.
0: Excellent. Well, it's greatly needed. I've seen it in my career. Um, mm-hmm. People having difficulties coming to the terms, they're not on the same page, like you stated. So in order to be successful in anything, a business, a family, you got to be on the same page. So I'm glad you glad you found this, uh, this line of work.
2: Yeah, and I think the... Um, What we often start with is, you know, they have, oh, they have ideas about money. Both of them do have very strong ideas about money and they often don't align. Totally fine. Totally fine. Last time y'all had a hopes and dreams conversation. Like when when we're planning, because they'll, they'll do a budget, right? That is part of the, there is a pragmatic piece to the financial therapy of, okay, do you guys even know what y'all are spending? No, we don't. Okay. We'll do the budget, but before they do the budget. They have to go have a hopes and dreams conversation where they go, I tell them, grab your beverage of choice, if it's tea or wine or whatever, right. and go sit down and talk about what you would love to do in life. And a lot of times these couples haven't had that conversation in years, if ever. And so you have to start with hope. And then that gives energy to, to do the hard task of the budgeting,
0: right? Right, right. Well, we talk a lot of, about retirement on this podcast, and baby boomers are a big part of that. And I really find that they have a lot of special challenges. And and with many baby boomers being a part of the sandwich generation, caring for aging parents, you know, adult children, and it brings on a unique position or impact. I and mean, how does that impact their financial or emotional well-being? I mean, it's a lot of stress, it, it appears to me.
2: For sure. And it's interesting, the... As, um, as time goes on, the baby boomer generation is because, you know, their parents are are passing on, right? right? They are, a few of my clients who are in that generation are coming to me after their parents have passed on and they've been caring for them at home sometimes, or even if they are caring for them a the facility, it's taken a lot of emotional toll and suddenly it's not there anymore. And they have to, figure out what they want to do with their retirement. And they've often forgotten what they even want. They don't even know what they want anymore. And that that's a whole nother challenge. And it's connected to the financial piece because they may have saved very well and have this money to spend and don't know what to do with it. Or they may have spent a lot of their money caring for their parents. And now they're kind of in a bind and then they have to make those decisions for themselves of, how do I preserve the retirement that I have and then still also care for my adult children um, or even sometimes young children? This um, The biggest sandwich generation cohort that's coming up is the Gen Xers, right? They've got sometimes even uh, young children um, under the age of 18 and adult children and their parents. And so they've got, that's our next big sandwich generation coming up. But But with those, with the specifically baby boomers, it's, you know, The particular challenges that they are going to face is I I do, I see two relatively, like you see two categories, folks who have saved for retirement and have saved well, and they can't go spend lavishly, but they have enough to uh, pay for their retirement. And the conversations I tend to have with those folks tend to be with setting boundaries with spending, knowing what is your, what's your monthly expenses. Right. What if, mm-hmm. And for a lot of them, their monthly expenses are not high. Their house is paid off. You know, they've been driving the same car, it's paid off. They don't have a ton of active debt, but they do have a lot of, how shall I say, um, relational debt <laughs> where they have somehow or another obligated themselves to a family member, sometimes a friend too. And they've created what in financial therapy called um, financial dependency where that person has now is now depending upon their help. And what they find is maybe when they were working, they could do that just fine. But now that they're entering into dipping into retirement income or retirement as their income, they find, you know, I don't know if that would be prudent anymore. And having to say no, after you've been saying yes for so long is a really uncomfortable conversation. And so that tends to be the work that I do with those families. We come in, we talk about the reality we use the numbers as our guide. We say, okay, here, here's the numbers. Here's what here's what your parents can do. Here's what they can't do. How does that impact your budget now? And you see this beautiful right. generational budgeting, right? Right. Of, right. Okay, how does this impact your budget and what you thought that they were going to be able to do? And but it's a once the conversation's had, there's transparency and clarity. So that's kind of one group. And then the other group would be with um with folks who you know, just maybe they had medical losses. Maybe they had just difficulties, and they were not able to save as much for retirement as they wanted to. And so they may have their social security, especially for federal employees. They may have some sort of um, pension set up, right? They they'll have that, but they look and they say this is not gonna cut it, right? And so then it's looking at you know, and for. Some federal employees, they're retiring fairly young. They're retiring in their fifties. They're not retiring, you know, in their sixties or seventies, they're retiring in their fifties. And so it's looking at, okay, maybe I do not stop working. Maybe I find a way to still generate some income because when I'm looking at the transparency is not just in relationships, it's also with yourself. And I'm looking at these numbers To be able to continue to live and to still have some fun, right? I need to keep working. And how can I find a job that will let me grow old while I'm doing it and isn't going to tax my body, isn't going to, um, you know, injure me, right? Those sort of questions, those sort of conversations. And then with that group, there's also can sometimes be a ton of shame. Cause there's this idea I, that we get sold as Americans of your retirement, you do nothing. You just sit around right. all day. And, <laughs> like, I don't know, do whatever you ever dreamed to do. And that's kind of a weird idea. Historically. I mean, <laughs> like across human history, we have never done this. This is a very new thing. And so we feel a lot of shame about it, but it's a relatively new invention. This idea of having excessive leisure time I don't know. It's not, um, it's not normal. And so finding finding a way to kind of work around that shame and dignify the work, say, yes, I have to work and I'm glad I can. And I'm going to do this work with a full heart. And I'm going to do this work and be really appreciative that I'm able to do it and be really, it's, it's kind of like reframing it from, oh, I'm such a schmuck, I didn't do the right right thing, I didn't save well, to, hey, ah, you know what, I made the decisions I made at the time, and they were the best decisions I made at the time. In hindsight, they weren't great, but now I'm making this good decision for me and my family, and so taking pride in that and joy in that.
0: Excellent. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked about several challenges that the baby boomers have, and I think a lot of it has to do with a person's relationship with money. And so how does one design the exact relationship with money that that they desire? It may not be what we think they need, but that they desire that they're happy with.
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, a lot of times, and again, this is not in the diagnostic statistical manual. This is not in the DSM. So when I use these terms, they're more colloquial financial therapy terms. Um, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want folks to be upset that I'm throwing out diagnoses. Uh, these are not diagnoses. These are phenomenon, right? But, um, a lot of folks, if when they money is neutral, what we do with it is good or evil or a spectrum of that, right? What we do with it gives it meaning, but money itself is, it's neutral. It's a tool that we use appropriately or inappropriately. A lot of times in life, people have experienced financial traumas. Parental job loss as a young child, you having to go work when you're 12 because the family needs income, experiencing um, just the inability to find a job, homelessness, very common, right? These financial traumas, when they happen, they have an impact, and they can tend to see money as a source of security, right, at, at times, right, and. This is one, one, there can be multiple reactions to these financial traumas. One reaction is money is safety and I need to get more of it to be safe. Another piece that can be is you only live once money is fleeting. If you have it today, you better spend it because it'll be stolen from you tomorrow. Right. This, you know, carpe diem, right. Kind of mentality with the money as safety mentality that can bring about very virtuous things, right? Okay, great. Mm -hmm. Maybe it leads someone to save prudently. Maybe it leads someone to um, seek out a career position that's rather secure. The dark side of that is if you're really putting all your security in life and in your heart and in your mind into money, oh man, what's gonna happen if you lose your job? What's gonna happen if you have a huge medical expense that you have to pay? And it wipes out your savings. You're going to have a really hard time with that. If you're hitching your safety in life to financial security, there's some danger in that, right? So how do you temper that? How do you say, yes, I'm going to be prudent and learn how to use money well, but I'm not going to put my entire self-worth. I'm not going to put my entire life's goal. And there's tons of people I'm sure you know who put their entire life's significance in having money, right? It's dangerous mentality. Religious traditions across the ages have said, be careful of that, it's dangerous. This other reaction of you only live once, spend the money, right? That's very dangerous too, right? It can lead to where um, the good side of that is very generous heart, that you'll see folks who just have this very loving, giving you know, hey, let's go celebrate you, you deserve this, a very beautiful, generous heart. The dark side of that is it can lead to where you um, don't quite take care of yourself before you celebrate others, or before you celebrate yourself. And so kind of tempering that tendency with, yes, be generous, but be generous in a way that makes sense. Be generous in a way that you are going to be able to be generous your whole life. If generosity is a virtue that you really hold close to your heart, wonderful. I want you to be able to be generous your entire life. And to do that, we need to set up some sort of savings. We need to set up your retirement. Yeah.
0: So you spoke of a a couple of uh, ideas that someone can use to implement to try to curb some of those (laughs) <laughs> Behaviors or or tendencies. Can you provide a pragmatic solution um, where where a baby boomer family may overcome their financial stressors? Um, they have a lot of stressors in life it, it, as a baby boomer and retiring uh, uncertainty. Can you provide any advice there?
2: Very broadly, because every every couple, every family is different, and you know needs different conversations. But mm-hmm. but I will say very generally. The biggest piece is good kind of goes back to that conversation about being really transparent. If you do not know how much you are spending per month, you need that number and you need it annually. You need an annual snapshot of how much money you need to know what number every year you need to live. And yes, 100% of my clients, even the ones who have a monthly budget, they often overlook this annual snapshot. That annual snapshot can tell such a beautiful story. And someone's budget is not just numbers. You know this stuff, right? Like someone's budget is their what they value, what is very important to them. You can tell so much of someone's mind and heart by looking at their spending. And so a lot of times folks don't know what they're spending The biggest piece of advice I can say, especially to someone who's entering retirement or is already retired, is understand that number, understand what you're working with, getting that down. And if you are in a long term committed relationship, making sure that, especially if you commingle funds, that your partner also sees this number and understands it. And if you don't commingle funds, making sure that all shared expenses are transparent. So just that transparency, so that because transparency, allows you to set up boundaries in a loving way. If you aren't clear on how much you can spend, if you aren't clear on how much you need to be saving or want to be saving, then you'll either spend in a frightened way. Like, okay, I don't know if I can pay for this meal or not, but here I go. And you feel kind of weird about it, or you will be too stingy you'll say, no, no, I'm not going to that because I, I can't afford it. When You don't actually know if you can afford it. or not, So it goes both ways. It can hit you both ways. So understanding, okay, what are we working with? What's our numbers? What's going on here? And then also, okay, now that lets me say yes in a authentic way. Like, oh yeah, I've got this. I've been saving my discretionary spending for this all month. I'm so excited to pay for this meal and enjoy this time with you guys. And it lets you say, oh, I can't do that this month because I've already allocated my discretionary. Next month, I would love to do that have space, right? It lets you say enthusiastically, yes. And it lets you say, uh, no, not yet, not no, never.
0: Very powerful. Even easier nowadays to budget with the modern day applications that are out there, software. Uh, it's You don't have to sit there and type it into the spreadsheet yourself. You can do that. It's, that's beneficial as well, but it's a lot of good tools out there.
2: Do you find that technology is helpful or intimidating with the baby boomer generation?
0: I find a lot of the baby boomers are pretty intelligent and they work in technology. So they can do it. No problem.
2: Yeah. And they're very comfortable with it and enjoy using it. Right. Like it's right. Know, too, there's this stigma that, oh, people don't know how to use technology. I'm like, I, that's not been my experience. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. So when, when you address specific financial behaviors, you know, um, We've talked already about some compulsive spending, but do you find that it differs? Overspending uh, manifests differently among older adults compared to younger generations?
2: I don't think that the the overspending generally differs. It, because, oh my, speaking of technology, <laughs> we have, as a society, done a fantastic job of creating thousands of different ways to spend your money. Amazon online shopping. Uh, There's just just so many ways to spend, 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 spend. And as we just said, baby boomers are very comfortable with technology. So that means they're also very comfortable with this spending technology. Um, Another terrible technology that's developed is um, the online stock trading apps that it is designed like a little casino in your hand Little bells go off when you get a return it, it's basically a slot machine, right, it, right.
1: It's,
2: it's fascinating. So to be honest, I see very similar overspending patterns. It's shopping just oh, there's a big sale. I've got to get that. I'm gonna be saving so much money by buying all this stuff on sale and then with also with the with those stock market apps, they can be very dangerous because it just You get the adrenaline going and it just, you can't stop it. The difference, I suppose, the biggest difference is that when you are working with millennials or Gen Xers who get into these traps of overspending, especially when the overspending results in significant credit card debt, they have a little bit more time to clean it up. They have a little more time to come to a reckoning of it. And I think that time creates the difference. That for the for the baby boomer generation, if they have a ton of credit card debt, it can feel a little defeating and they say, screw it. I'm never going to pay this off. I'm just going to keep adding to it. You only live once, right? And so I think that's the big difference that I see is the attitude taken towards, towards any debt that gets incurred from the overspending. Is that with the millennials and the Gen Zers, there's this attitude of, we got to get a handle on this. We need to fix this. And sometimes with the baby boomer folks, it can be, it can feel very defeating. And, you know, that's when, that's when I refer them to, to to Jeff and to, (laughs) to the, the, you know, attorneys at his firm and everything who, who can help answer those questions of what does happen to my consumer debt upon death? Does it get sent to my children or not? And if it doesn't, At all these really big questions, right? Of, will it come from my estate? There's a lot of really important legal questions with that high levels of debt. And I'm not talking $10,000 of debt. I'm talking sometimes six figures of credit card debt that folks kind of have to grapple with. And that financial therapy term that comes up is financial avoidance, doing the ostrich and just shoving your head in this and saying, I'm just going to ignore it. It's going to go away. Some debt's forgiven, some debt does go away and doesn't get passed on, but most of it sticks and has consequences. Right. So again, back to that transparency piece.
0: Yeah. Very good. Can you elaborate on financial enmeshment and how it can be damaging, especially for families with multiple generations living together, either financially or interdependent? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So um very generally enmeshment is a is a family therapy term. That essentially means, it doesn't mean closeness. I don't want to pathologize having a close family, especially, you know, I'm, I'm married to a Hispanic man and in Hispanic culture, I mean, very close families, right? And so sometimes, depending upon cultural uh, pieces within the family, some people may say, oh, that's an enmeshed family, when it's just a close family. It's not an enmeshed family. So enmeshment does not mean closeness. Enmeshment means I can't make a decision. I can't know what I feel. I can't know what I think without checking with my family first. Uh, I don't even know what I am, who I am. I have to check with my family first. And so what you balance is healthy balance is being close to the family, having a sense of belonging, having a sense of tradition and values, and also having a sense of yourself and who you are and what your values are within that familial context. So that's enmeshment. Financial enmeshment is similar. I can't make financial decisions. I can't know what to do or think about money without consulting my family, and I have to do it the way they do it. And so you can see within financial enmeshment, there can be transgenerational, really kind of unhopeful spending traditions and saving traditions, right? And so it can really take a toll and it does have an impact on someone who's trying to reform their way of spending and saving. And and I say spending and saving because sometimes there's pathological um, saving, right? right? We haven't talked about that too much yet, but there is pathological saving to the point to where you just hoard, 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 and you don't invest it because that's risky, or you also don't spend it. And so you just you don't live, you don't enjoy right. life. You're not You're not using the tool of money wisely, right? And that's why like with the budgeting, whenever I talk to my couples, I say, where's your fun money? I said, what do you mean? We can't have fun, we're on a budget. I say, ah, no, you must budget discretionary spending because you're going to anyway. You're gonna spend on fun things. You should spend on fun things. Money is there for us to enjoy life. But if you don't budget for it, you're either gonna overspend or you're gonna to get too miserly. right? And those are both not not good, right? And so I think within the enmeshment piece, helping people kind of discern, okay, like, am I going to one of those two extremes? Am I being miserly or am I just spending too much? And which of my family values are really good and I really want to engender and which of my family values do I wanna change? And do I wanna bring into my family?
0: Oh, awesome i mean a lot of great points there and i'm sure our our listeners will have get a lot of info from this but when it comes to retirement planning um, how does financial therapy approach the retirement planning especially when we have disruptive spending behavior and even other financial challenges when when those occur
2: it's a great point right and it's like i was saying earlier the way that you know a millennial gen z um, baby boomer client the attitude they will have towards this is different because of that um, the potential to change the potential to have an impact right i saw this and you probably know this data better than me so correct me if i'm wrong but there's like that number that people need to be saving by age 25 if they want to have at least a million dollars in retirement the average age of everyone who starts saving is 31 and you know, people just don't understand the impact of compounded interest. They don't understand. Um, even really wealthy people, really smart people, don't understand these basic principles. So some of it is psychoeducational, is saying, okay, if they have these beautiful tools that you can use for, you know, compounded interest calculators. Here's if you, you know, if you started saving now, this is what you could have, you know, uh, given that. So. How do you balance paying off that debt and saving for retirement? How do you balance and still having fun and living at the same time, right? Right. Right. Because I see a lot of folks, it's kind of like crash dieting. You've seen those folks who are like, I need to lose weight. I'm gonna, no carbs, no carbs at all, ever again. And they sustain that for two months and then your body wasn't made to live that way. And so you end up going back, but then you end up gaining more weight because you're now overcompensating for all that de- you know deprivation. Right. Same thing. With spending. If you do the crash diet of spending, I don't know if you've encountered people who say, no, spend January, right? They like, they just don't spend any money. Okay. <laughs> but that's not sustainable long-term, right? Like that's not sustainable. So you have to have the freedom to spend. Budget should be liberating, not constricting. And so, 100%. right. And so, having having them set up this budget that does pay attention to retirement. What I find a lot of times is people are um, people with the overspending. Um, people can be stretched so thin that they don't feel like they can save anything for retirement. And so, at that point, you kind of prioritize. Okay, can you at least do up to the matching that your employer gives? You know, because that's leaving money on the table. Okay, can you right, at least right. do- okay, great. You can at least do that. Wonderful. And then as they pay off the debt, increasing increasing their retirement savings along the way, and then also increasing their discretionary spending along the way, right? It's, it's that balance. It's that balance. And I think that for, you know, I think that that's that healthy, uh, we talked about relationship with money earlier. The healthy relationship with money is using it responsibly and using it for fun too. Having that Excellent. Having
0: So what advice do you have for couples that maybe have differing views is when it comes to retirement planning, I've had people just get up from the table and walk away and, you know, in the middle of uh, having, having that conversation. Absolutely. And when that happens, it's, it's over with, I mean, it's, it's hard to come back.
2: Yes, for sure. And this is why I, I um if you look at my, my blog on couples and budgeting, it's, you know, creating a budget that reflects both of your values. A lot of times, if a family budgets, it's only reflecting one of the person's values. That leads to imbalance, which leads to resentment. (laughs) And a lot of times that resentment will take years of building up. And then all of a sudden they're at retirement and the person whose voice was never in the budget finally gets spoken and they say, I don't want that. I'm not doing that. I want to live for me now and it can lead to a lot of pain and a lot of strife and so the encouraging folks to have those aspirational conversations throughout their relationship and if they're married especially if they're married in a state where it's um, Texas is a community property state
1: right
2: you don't have a prenuptial agreement guess what it's all the same money. So it's all y'all's money. It doesn't matter who brought it in. It's the family bringing it in. And so really seeing the money as y'all's estate. And really, it's it. I know this kind of gets philosophical, but it really goes back to like, what's our family's mission statement? Hmm. What does our family stand for? It goes back to what we were saying a little bit earlier about You know, if you hitch your wagon of security to just having money, that's really dangerous, right? If you just hitch your family's mission statement, purpose to being financially secure, okay, but what are you doing with the financial security? What are you doing with it? Right. What is your, what would people be able to look at your family and say, that's what they stand for. Hmm. That's what's meaningful in their life. How would they right. see that reflected? And so it does really go back to processing your belief systems. And I, this can be spiritual belief systems. This can be philosophical belief systems. I have clients from, you know, atheists to, to devout Muslims, Hasidic Jews, um, uh, Christians, like it, your belief system has to be reflected in your saving and in your retirement and, and how you live your life. And I think that a lot of times families don't slow down because we're so busy. (laughs) We're so busy just trying to survive, that we don't slow down. We just kind of check into Netflix and check out because we're exhausted. Turn off the Netflix, turn to each other and have that conversation about, honey, what is the meaning of life? Why are we on this planet? Have those conversations. And from there, that's when it leads to what do we want retirement to look like? What we want retirement to look like has to be rooted in what do we believe our purpose is here on earth? And if it's not rooted in that, it becomes very superficial and weird and surface. And so linking those two is really important. And a lot of times that's where you can find compromise. So, okay, you you want to... Travel the world and and go on cruises and and do that in your retirement. You want to buy a beach house and live on the shore and stay in one place. Okay. Tell me, how do both of those connect to your, why you think we were on earth? Okay. This person wants to travel because they believe that seeing other cultures and experiencing other people is one of the best parts of humanity. And this person wants to live at the beach because they want to build community. Ah, I see a similar thread there both of those value community. Okay. Right. How can we compromise there? So I think that's where the conversation about differing values um, can be. Eventually you can find a thread of concurrence and that's where you, that's where you generate the the hopes and dreams from.
0: Okay. Very good. Well, when you have a uh, specific therapeutic areas, such as uh, let's say financial infidelity among couples uh, near retirement, how do you approach that? And and it's complex.
2: It is, yes, it is. And so um so financial infidelity broadly is lying about money, either lying about money you spent, lying about money you earned, hiding it, or both. And there can be lots of different reasons for this financial infidelity, for this lying about money. Um, some of it can be fear. I don't want to tell them that I spent this much, but I know it's coming up on the credit card. I know they're going to see it. Oh, they're going to yell at me. I'm so scared. Some of it can be, I don't want to tell them that I got this bonus because they're going to want it from me and we need to save this money. So I'm not going to tell them. The error at the heart of both of those mentalities is, not the error, sorry, I misspoke. The disruptive piece of both of those uh, mentalities is, I can't be transparent with my partner. Mm. I can't be transparent with them. If I'm transparent with them, it's going to mean something bad. And so at the heart of that, before we even address the financial fidelity, we need to talk about creating a space. And that sometimes is what my office is. It's a space where they can safely talk about money. But I don't want them to have to come to me every time they have to talk about money.
0: Right,
2: right. That's a waste of their time. I want them to find a way to be able to safely talk about this money stuff at home with each other. And it's tough. It's tough. Admitting right. that you did something wrong is hard, but it's also liberating because then it increases a term called financial intimacy. Okay. Being able to share, Oh, and to be able to trust your partner with money and financial decisions. And it can be scary because people generally people commit financial fidelity. Because they've been hurt by their partner before they, they overspend. And instead of their partner saying, Whoa, Hey, like, can we return some of these things? If it was maybe a little over budget, how can I, what are you missing in our relationship that you feel like you need to spend this much? How am I not Mm. being a partner? Instead, they, you are a bad person. How could you endanger our family They get judged, criticized? right. So reforming that, that reaction is really important, really crucial to addressing that financial fidelity. And so I think that if people are going to um, approach it from a stance of judgment, ah, I mean, you're in trouble. But if you approach it from a stance of love and understanding, then that creates that trust. Then that creates that financial intimacy. And really, very pragmatically, you guys are going to have the ability to build wealth together if you're coming from that stance.
0: Excellent, excellent. What are some signs, you mentioned hoarding earlier. What are some signs of financial hoarding? And uh, how can, how can the impact a person's, retirement security.
2: Yeah, great. So hoarding generally is, y'all you might've seen those TV shows like The Hoarders where they have like boxes and boxes of things stacked up in their home. Well, imagine that, but with money, they just have tons and tons of money uh, saved up and they're scared to spend a cent of it. They're scared to invest a cent of it. They just accumulate it in their bank accounts, um, which- these days, y'all accumulating money in your bank account is the equivalent of stuffing it in your mattress, right? It's, it's just inflation and all that stuff is just going to eat away at the value of it. So it's hard because it's kind of a, like a, a freeze response, you know, the, the fear response of, you know, uh, fight flight or freeze it's the freeze response. I'm just going to hold on to all of it because I I'm scared. Right. It's a fear-based. Right. Re- the way that can impact your retirement long-term is, you know, you're, In order to have the money grow, you do have to invest it. And that's when I pass it off to you, Jeff. That's when I say, so go talk to Jeff about how to Uh do that, how to invest well. And I don't encounter that as much. I don't encounter the financial hoarding as much in that sense where they're just saving a ton. Where I encounter financial hoarding tendencies in my practice is more when people will not spend anything, again, out of fear, because they don't know their number. They don't know what their discretionary spending number is. And right. it's a great way to help whew, help those folks. It's it's really cool to see um, like, okay, they figure out together what their financial, um, what their discretionary budget is each month. And let's say it's $500 a person. Okay, great. Oh, another key discretionary spending needs to be equal. Each person needs to get the same amount. Otherwise that breeds a lot of resentment. So regardless of who brings in more money, it's the same discretionary amount. So let's say it's $500 the person who's been a little bit financially hoarding is liberated to spend money safely. Right. And they come in, I bought a pair of shoes. How was that? And I knew I could buy it. It's really amazing. It's really beautiful. It's this, you know, it sounds kind of silly because for some people they say, Oh, like they have the opposite problem. They spend too much, but for these folks, they really have trouble spending because they don't know if they can do so safely. And so when you give them a way where they can spend the money safely, they start to kind of just enjoy life so much more.
0: Give them the tools to say yes.
2: Yes. Enthusiastic consent. Right. To spend.
0: right. Yeah. So yeah. with financial communication, you know, money is often taboo subject in many families, how can families change the way that they feel and communicate about money?
2: Yeah. You're bringing it up for me. Um, if something is not done with love, then to hell with it. A lot of times when families communicate about money, it's done because of like shot and fraud, which is this phenomenon where you're taking joy in other people's suffering where you're yeah. like, Ooh, they lost all their money on this investment or they overspent. And, and you like use that to feel good about your own decisions. That's gross. That's icky. That's not that's not a good heart to take towards this. Right, right. So it's either like done with shot and fraud in mind, or it's also done with um kind of correcting them. You need to do something different. You're making really bad decisions. You're bad with money. It's like this calling out. And the intent is maybe good there. I'm trying to correct them. I'm trying to help them. But man, the delivery makes it awful. The delivery, you might as well not do it. If you're right. not doing it with love, to hell with it. Don't bother. That's how I help these families and these, um, these couples is when you bring up money issues, do it with love. And I don't mean love like, Oh, I mean, defining love as willing the good of the other. I'm willing the good of this other person. How can I best talk with them about these things that are really important small example, but you know, um, Christmas time and you've got a big family and the family feels pressure to buy for every single person to buy a gift for every single person. And someone has an idea of, Oh, maybe we just draw names and we get just one person, that right. we're not having to go into all this debt for each other. If you come in with that idea saying this is stupid, we're spending too much money. Y'all are being irresponsible. I'm not doing this anymore. Blah. Well, you've just ruined Christmas.
1: <laughs> right, right. But if right. you
2: come and you say, Hey, guys, I had this idea. I think it'll be really fun. We can even hide it from each other. It could be a nice surprise. We can kind of set a budget. What do y'all think? Then it lets people say, Oh, man, I really like that idea because maybe they had the same idea, but they were scared to say it. Right. right. So, really helping people change their delivery because if your delivery of a good message is bad, you've made the message bad. But if your delivery of a good message is loving, all of a sudden you've elevated it and you've made it a conversation and something where you're respecting the other person. And so that that's that shift. That's how you break the taboo because that's, we haven't been taught how to have those loving conversations around finances.
0: Right. No, you're exactly right. So when you design Dr. Stephanie, the, uh, a treatment plan or a therapy plan, Uh, for a client, how do you customize the financial therapy plans for each individual or or couples? I mean, how do you do that? How do you come up with that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I I tell folks that I have a two-prong approach. One side is kind of like more and more pragmatic side. And then my other side is the psychological, spiritual, emotional part. And so this pragmatic side is I have everyone at least attempt. If they can't, some folks just don't like it, can't do it. But I have folks at least attempt doing that annual budget. Right? Okay. Do an annual budget. Cause even my folks who budget monthly, there's something different about seeing it all for the whole year and seeing, oh, and it's interesting too, because a lot of my couples generally, generally there's a person who really likes tracking money and a person who hates tracking money. And somehow they always marry each other. <laughs> they always right, tend to right. together. And so, for the person who doesn't like tracking money, who isn't micromanaging that stuff, they love the annual snapshot. It just something clicks. They say, okay, now I get it. Now I get what you're saying. I see it here. And so, that's that I kind of have every couple do that. Let's get an annual snapshot. And then also, let's set up a discretionary spending. Even if you can't do the annual snapshot, I understand it's a lot of data, it takes time, but setting up a discretionary spending point. Generally, I recommend folks um, calculate 5% post-tax income, 7.5% post-tax income, or 10% post-tax income. And that's per person per month so that you'd be spending 10%, 15%, or 20% of your post-tax, don't be cheating, it's post-tax income, on discretionary spending. Why do I not recommend going below 5%? Because honestly, if you go below 5%, you're going to be very unhappy and you're not going to do well, especially for couples who are trying to rein in spending. You're asking someone to go from unlimited spending or seemingly unlimited spending down to $500 a month. That's challenging. If you make that too, I tell them it should feel restrictive and boundaried, but not constricting where they can't breathe. And that's okay. that's what I want them to set up. And to set up a method to track it, they can use an app to track it. Some folks love doing the apps. Other folks say, I don't want to track it. Let's just put it on a debit card. And that debit card will be my discretionary spending. And when it's done, it's done. So so folks choose how they want to do it. So that's the pragmatic steps that I do for every couple. The other side, that psychological, spiritual, emotional piece is when we talk about how these money views are impacting the rest of the relationship, how it's impacting their parenting how it's impacting their sex life, how it's impacting their friendship. Oh, their friendship, right? Like right. a lot of times they don't even see each other as friends anymore. <laughs> right? And like having just these beautiful conversations that as they start to change the way that they do money in their household, how is it impacting their relationship in general and really being able to get closer in ways that they never could because the finances were keeping them from getting close.
0: Excellent. You mentioned a moment ago about uh, some people may decide not to retire. They may continue to work until the end. And some people may consider that workaholism. So, I mean, I consider it, it's an occupation, it's an occupation. You It occupies your time, your passion about it. But you, it can also be dangerous as well. But have you encountered situations where workah- workaholism has impacted uh, a person's retirement plans? For
2: sure we sure. So one of the themes that comes up and in particular with my, re- my, I won't say retired because they're not, they're not done working, but my retirement age couples is we have the money budget. Right. We also have the time budget. And so where do those intersect? Especially for, um, for folks who need to keep working. Those two categories of retirees, we talked about who continue working. There's those who continue working because they just love what they do and they don't want to get bored. And, you know, and and maybe they even want to build some wealth to leave to their children, right? So there's that category. And there's that category who has to work. So I literally have to keep working. So both of these categories can tend towards this workaholism. Both of these categories can do that. And so looking at that time budget can be a helpful guide of how to not fall into that workaholic tendency. Just like you have to have a discretionary spending allocated for your financial budget, right. you must set up discretionary time. Okay, If you're working, especially in the gig economy, oh my gosh, Jeff, people could work 24 seven if they wanted to with Uber, with 24 hour establishments such as Walmart. I mean, you have the capacity to work whenever you want to, and it's dangerous. It's tempting, especially gosh, like if you feel that, that need to make more money quickly, right? Making sure to set aside discretionary time. Let's say that someone still has to work 40 hours a week. Wonderful. That's okay. There's no shame in it. What are you doing in that off time? Cause it's not just the time as an objective hour or minutes. It's also the quality of the time. Are you just zoning out? You're so stressed. Are you just zoning out and watching Netflix or are you using that couple hours before you go to bed to hang out with your friends, to you know have great conversations with your spouse, using that time so it's quality time. You're going to have all the time in the world. And if you're not using the time in a quality way, eh, then worth <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, it goes back yeah. to what's your family mission statement? What do we stand for? What's important to us? If you look at someone's financial budget, you can see what's important to them. And if you look at someone's time budget, you can see what's important to them. And so making sure, and I'm not saying every single minute of the day has to be spent gazing into your beloved's eyes, holding hands and talking about the meaning of life. I am not saying that at all, but I am saying, if you're going to watch a Netflix show, choose a show together, snuggle while you're watching it, you know, discuss it afterwards, be like, what did you think was the moral of that story? Right. Make things meaningful. Don't use it as escapes. Right. And that, that goes back to that second point about work allism is the work, something that is, especially for that category where they don't have to work, but they're choosing to work. Is that work filling you with joy and meaning and purpose, or are you doing it to escape something that you talk about? Right. So it's kind of discerning all those factors.
0: It's a big subject.
2: Mm -hmm. Mhm.
0: So I work with a lot of uh, families it could be partially due to workaholism as well but they're blended families.
2: Mhm. And what do you how do you define blended family? What do you mean? Blended
0: families may be uh you know they're they have been divorced maybe both both parties have been divorced and they they're entering retirement they have children from previous divorces and maybe even children together and they have different views on finances. So it's always a touchy subject, but have you had this circumstance where you've had to help clients work through these difficult conversations?
2: For sure. Absolutely. And it's, I love that. I love that you brought that up because it's, I mean, if you look at some of the old, you know, the original research from family therapy, it's, you know, mom, dad, and two kids, 2.5 children and a dog and a picket fence, right? Like that's like their definition of a family and family is not that anymore no. <laughs> family has changed and transformed and and I, I think in a beautiful way we've really expanded our capacity to be in relationship with each other and I think it's I think it's great and it does present these challenges these unique historic circumstances of okay well you know if let's say it's a blended family scenario where one partner in the relationship has three children from previous marriage and they remarried, and they have one child with their current partner. It's natural and human for that one partner to want their inheritance to be favored towards their child, because they say, well, I've brought assets into this marriage, or I have grown this marriage, and I think it's, I don't want to leave money equally to all the children. That's human, and makes sense, and I don't blame that second partner for having those ideas, right? But then the The partner who has four children might say, no, I want them to have, you know, equal share. And this is something where the dreaded word, right? Prenuptial agreements. People think if I get a prenuptial agreement, that means I don't love my spouse. That means Mm. I'm planning for divorce. No, no, no. (laughs) A prenuptial agreement is just a way of being transparent. And my advice for any listeners, if you are entering into a a second marriage, go ahead and get a prenuptial agreement, not saying, well, when we get divorced, blah, 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 not at all. It's saying when we retire, when we die and we're leaving Uh. our estate, you can leave your estate. Let's take that same scenario. If they had a nice prenup in place, she could say, Hey, honey, my income is going to be left to our child. And then you can divide your estate into four. How does that sound? easy peasing, lemon squeezy, right? right that's bigger right. and easy and transparent. But once you've co-mingled the assets, aye, 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 it's a mess. Right. So, and, and I know for a lot of your listeners, they say, great stuff. That's really helpful. Well, I don't have a prenup and I'm already in this situation. How do we handle it from here? That's where you go back to, okay, what does our family stand for? Um, what would be fair, right? For example, if those three children from the first marriage if they're adults and grown do they really need as much from our estate where it versus the the um the child from the second marriage they, they may be very young they may be under 18 still and so it's taking a contextual approach to who's the most vulnerable in the family and who needs the most consideration right. if they're all adult children okay then maybe just divide it by four but if there's one that's more vulnerable maybe has a health issue or something like that. You take those things into context and consideration, and that's where you have those conversations, again, from that stance of transparency, looking at the numbers, what are we working with here? And then from the stance of, okay, now we can set our loving boundary. Um, And That's what the advice I would give to to folks who are in the blended family situation is um, don't avoid it. Don't so avoid the right. conversation. Don't storm out of the room when you're meeting with Jeff, you know, have the conversation and, um, and be open about what you want. This is just good marriage advice in general, but right. especially finances. a lot of times people, when they come to a conversation, they come with what they think the other person wants and they come, they state a compromise. So instead of I'll say dinner, so let's say someone really wants to eat at a particular restaurant, but they know the other person doesn't like it very much. So they say, okay, we'll do this compromise restaurant. And the other person really wants to eat at this restaurant, but they know the other person doesn't like it. So they do this compromise restaurant. So then they're kind of arguing about two compromises that neither of them really wants. And so then you end up with this really weird dining situation that neither party is really happy with. Silly example, but not a true one. Now apply that same thing to finances. Say what you actually want. And then compromise from there and be transparent. Say, I know you don't want this. I'm just saying what I want so we can work on the compromise from a stance of what I actually want. Okay, well, this is what I actually want. Great. What's our family mission statement? What's our values and virtues? Why do we think we exist here on this earth? What's important and purposeful in life? How can we create together something that makes sense and is fair? Whereas if you start with the compromise or what you think the compromise is, You've probably gotten the compromise wrong and you also then will get this weird hybrid that neither of you are happy with. So start from saying what you actually want, not what you think the other person wants you to say.
0: Excellent. I think that financial therapist is probably essential to working through that before you even speak with a, uh, like an estate planning attorney to, to establish a trust, to execute your wishes. So great information. Uh, A couple of final thoughts, you know, given all these potential stressors and challenges, what gives you hope and optimism in your work as a uh, financial therapist?
2: Gosh, that's a great question. Um, I would say what gives me hope is when, when you see those breakthroughs, when you see people struggle through and have those difficult conversations. And I'll tell you, it's not always pretty. My clients do not always leave my office smiling. <laughs> right. Often it's the opposite. They leave my office kind of frustrated, but when they work through it, when they have those difficult conversations, and when they're able to start really living in a way that makes more sense, it's a transformative experience where they not only are spending and saving in a way that makes sense, but they're living a more purposeful life. I mean, that's what gives me hope. That's why I'm doing this. Right? Is yeah. is that I, I think it is connected to something much deeper than than just your balances on your on your accounts. It's connected to you living a fully flourishing life.
0: Yeah. Wonderful. Dr. Stephanie, do you have any resources or recommendations for for our baby boomers in the sandwich generation or individuals who are looking to improve their relationship with money?
2: Yeah, for sure. I, I'll I'll give a plug for Financial Therapy Texas. Uh, Financial Therapy mm-hmm. Texas is my business that I have, and I have a blog there that I recommend y'all to go to. You can just google financialtherapytexas.com, um, go to the blog there, lots of different resources and information there. I just published a blog about um, the student loan forbearance and how you can use student loan forbearance ending as a way to increase your financial financial intimacy. So just different topics like that Another uh, tool that I really recommend to folks who are just getting started and are kind of, you know, maybe confused is, I don't agree with all his products, but Dave Ramsey just has some really wonderful products out there to kind of help with that clarity and help with, you know, seeing your financial situation for what it is, Mm -hmm. and then helps you to make decisions from there. Again, there are some products that, you know, I'm like, ah, that's you know there's so advice that I'm like, Dave come on, he forgot to get the fun memo, but
0: right right I,
2: mean, I really do think that um those are great places to start. I also for folks who are just looking for a great spending tracking app, I use mint. there's also one that's interesting. it's for couples it's called honey but okay. Do is spelt D-U-E, not D-O. So it's Honey Do. Okay. And it's a neat way for couples, especially couples that want to keep finances separate, but they want to track the conjoint spending. That's a really neat app for people to check out.
0: Excellent. Well, it's been very interesting having you on today. I've really enjoyed speaking to you, Dr. Stephanie Zapata, today. And I want to thank you for being here. And uh, you have been listening to Navigating Freedom in Federal Retirement, And uh, we'll see you again next week for our next episode. Thank you.
1: This concludes another episode of Navigating Freedom in Federal Retirement Podcast. As federal employees, your retirement journey is unique, and we're here to guide you every step of the way. With host Jeff Gill and our lineup of experts, we aim to bring clarity to your path ahead. If you found value in today's conversation, please share it with a fellow federal employee. Remember to subscribe for continued insights. Until next time, here's to your informed and bright retirement future.